Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Christianity and climate change. I think Christianity and religion generally contribute to the phenomenon of climate change denial, as well as the widespread apathy towards any action. We can start with the correlation between Christianity and climate change denial, which has been well documented in surveys of the American population, in polls conducted by Pew and Barna Group, as well as many others. And frankly, if you haven't noticed the correlation, you're not paying attention. Climate change deniers make up less than one-fifth of the general U.S. population, and yet they have tremendous influence. But the figure is roughly doubled in the U.S. Christian population. So not every religious person is a climate denier, but the vast majority of climate change deniers are religious. Of course, this doesn't necessarily mean there's a causal relationship between religion and the rejection of climate science. People who are bad at thinking can come to unrelated bad conclusions. However, we have a lot more than correlational data. For one, there are obvious logical and behavioral consequences of Christian belief, which we'll be talking about soon. We also have the testimony of believers, from those like myself, who can remember not caring about climate change and why, and from current believers who are more than happy to tell us why they either don't believe in climate change, or don't care to do anything about it if they do. I don't see any reason to doubt these testimonies. They're telling us why they're not worried about it. It's consistent with other data we have, and it's easy to see how their beliefs lead to their denial and apathy towards any action. And yet, many are very slow to admit there's any connection. Religion actually does change the behavior of those who adhere to it. Beliefs have consequences. I'm arguing that the phenomenon of climate change denial is in part created and sustained by the Christian worldview. Of course, the economic and ideological factors should not be overlooked. But Christianity is fertile soil for the component parts of climate change denial. The three causes I want to discuss today are otherworldliness, apocalypticism, and belief in a divinely enforced moral order to the universe, just world belief. But before we get to that, let's address a couple sticking points I imagine some listening might have. For one, my use of climate change denial instead of climate change skepticism. First, my heart is truly warmed that people who have never been skeptical about anything else in their lives have suddenly discovered the value of skepticism. If you're a climate change skeptic, but not a skeptic in any other area, the odds are you're not actually a skeptic. Skepticism doesn't require that you have a permanent position of doubt towards all beliefs no matter what the evidence. It's an approach to claims, rather than a position. Skepticism is a useful epistemological tool at our disposal. One way of approaching a new claim is to doubt it, try to prove it wrong. This pushes back against our natural psychological tendency of confirmation bias, favoring bits of data that confirm what we already believe and forgetting the problems or dismissing them as exceptions, remembering the hits and forgetting the misses. Skepticism is a technique for trying to overcome this. Skepticism is not aimless disbelief, and it's certainly not refusing to believe conclusions that are unwelcome to you or your ideology. Why not call those who doubt that cigarettes cause lung cancer skeptics? It's not like any question that you answer in the negative automatically makes you the skeptic. To quote environmental scientist Hayden Washington, refusing to accept the overwhelming preponderance of evidence is not skepticism. It is denial. End quote. 
And besides, even if you consider yourself a climate change skeptic, that shouldn't prevent you from understanding and even agreeing with my case that Christianity is fertile soil for climate denial and apathy. The second issue I thought some might have is my characterization of religious people and Christians as a block of climate change deniers. I don't intend to paint all Christians in this light. I'm referring to the significant portion of fundamentalist Christians, in other words, Christians who actually take their religion seriously, who deny the reality and danger of climate change, and are lethargic when it comes to any potential action. I'm not talking about all Christians, or even all fundamentalist Christians. Pat Robertson is a notable exception, to the dismay of his audience. There's also Sir John Hewton, who you may not have heard of, but he created something called the Evangelical Climate Initiative, or ECI, in 2006. And somehow, despite that passage about being good stewards that's constantly thrown at me, the Christian community didn't warmly embrace this initiative. I'm reading from a paper called Religion and Climate Change by Randolph DeLay. Quote, The ECI encountered tremendous backlash in the American evangelical landscape, led by the Southern Baptist Convention. The burgeoning climate denial movement found fertile ground in partnership within conservative Christianity, both evangelical and Catholic. Polls frequently show evangelical Christians in certain countries, for example Britain, Canada, the U.S., Australia, have higher rates of denial of climate change and lower rates of acceptance of climate policy options than most other social groups. End quote. So yes, we're supposed to be good stewards, but the world has ultimately been put here for us to use. We were given dominion over the earth. And good stewardship doesn't change the apocalypticism of the Christian religion, or the belief in an ultimate moral order, or the fixation on another world beyond the one we live in. As I mentioned, the three main causes I have in mind are apocalypticism, otherworldliness, the idea that there's an additional, better, more perfect world, and cosmic moral order. These beliefs are poisonous to life itself in a number of ways, and today's subject is only one example. Nietzsche warned us about the otherworldliness of Christianity. Quote, I beseech you, my brothers, remain true to the earth, and do not believe those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes. Poison mixers are they, whether they know it or not. Despisers of life are they, decaying and poisoned themselves, of whom the earth is weary. So let them go. Once the sin against God was the greatest sin, but God died, and these sinners died with him. To sin against the earth is now the most dreadful thing. End quote. Nietzsche wasn't advocating for environmentalism there. By earth, he meant the natural world. He thought that fixing your eyes on another reality only served to diminish this reality. And contrary to the popular understanding of Nietzsche, he had a great passion for life. He was only a nihilist in the sense that he thought it should be the default position, but he didn't live as a nihilist, and he thought it was something to be overcome. Nietzsche explicitly opposed nihilism because it weakens the passion for life, the only life we have. For the time being, I'm going to call the Christian conception of God and the supernatural the other world. The other world is imagined to be superior to this world in every way you could call the realm of God the true world. This world is temporary. The other is eternal. This world is plagued by sin. The other is perfect. This world only exists at the pleasure of the other world. The other world created this world. The other world, the true world, could exist even if this one did not. These ideas that usually go unspoken lead to a natural moral judgment. The other world is higher and more valuable than the visible world. It's the source of truth, goodness, beauty, and the very existence of the natural world. Nietzsche pointed out that the exaltation of another world, or the true world, is a desire to escape the imperfections 
and the burdens of this world and this life. Nietzsche called this desire the metaphysical need, and argued that humans were looking for a more perfect world that was absent of suffering and death, a just world. According to Nietzsche, inventing this other world amounted to a quote, slander, detraction, and suspicion against life, which resulted from our weakness. We avenge ourselves against life with a phantasmagoria of another, a better life. End quote. So how does all this talk of otherworldliness connect to the subject at hand? The point is that otherworldliness, which is a fundamental part of religion, devalues this world and this life. The religious never imagine another world that's inferior to this one, and it's used to justify belief and behavior that would be entirely nonsensical without the appeal to the other world. Heaven is a very literal illustration of this idea that there are two worlds and we should care more about one of them than the other. And it's crucial to my point, but otherworldliness extends beyond heaven. The other world compensates for all the shortcomings of this world. Can't justify morality? Look to the other world. Can't justify certainty or objective truth? The other world has got you covered. Can't find a reason for all the evil and suffering in the world? The other world can explain it. The appeal to another world can justify practically anything, and it's because it's not really there. It's whatever you imagine it to be. The other world serves many functions for human beings, and if nothing else, the most literal and probably most important manifestation of what I'm talking about, heaven, should make it clear. It does not matter if this earth burns to the ground and human civilization collapses into dust. It doesn't matter if we destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons. Our soul, which is another thing that only makes sense when you appeal to the other world, will travel to the other world after death. In Christianity, there's an explicit denial of the importance of this life, because eternity awaits us. You spend 80 or so measly years here on earth, but then you go on to spend 80 billion years in heaven, and then another 80 billion, and another, and another, for all of eternity. There simply is no honest way for a Christian to claim that this world is as important as what comes after. You're going to heaven or hell forever, and the difference between earthly life and the afterlife is literally infinite. So Christian beliefs about the afterlife devalue this life and direct your concern and your interest towards something other than the only existence there is for you. The belief in this other life changes your behavior in this one. This is why Nietzsche said that those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes are poisoners of life, whether they know it or not. And think about the art Christians produce. I can think of plenty of lyrics and songs that illustrate their mindset on this point. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Or the things of earth grow strangely dim, there's a better home waiting in the sky. And that's not even scratching the surface of the artistic or theological expressions of a longing for this world to be over and to leave this decaying place behind. I don't want to diminish the fact that taking your eyes off this world and putting them on an imaginary world is itself a tragedy. This is the only world there is, and you're not really living in this world. You're not fully present here if your eyes are set on some other world. That other world is a parasite on this one. When you're concerned with these otherworldly agents and forces and rules that are influencing this life, you make very different choices. What is rational to do changes. The purpose of this episode is to argue that this other world is one force causing the destruction of this one, or at least making the destruction of this world no big deal.
So there's this true world that's taking their eyes off the life in front of them and changing the way they think and feel about this life in this world. The other two reasons I wanted to discuss are really subcategories of otherworldliness, apocalypticism and just world belief. To quote the former pastor, William Nichols, During my 20 years as a Christian, including my time spent as a missionary, a youth pastor, and an assistant pastor within the network of evangelical churches known as Calvary Chapel, climate change wasn't something I worried about. End quote. That's from an article Nichols wrote for the Humanist magazine entitled, Blinded by Eschatological Light. Eschatology is the area of theology concerned with studying revelation and the end of the world generally, at least according to the Bible. Quoting from the article again, I recycled, tried not to litter, and thought that electric and hybrid cars were generally a good idea, even though I didn't own one. And though I would feign concern at times, neither I, nor any Christian I knew, really worried about things like pollution, global warming, ocean acidification, or any of the other seemingly apocalyptic scenarios put forth by the scientific community. I thought I had insider information about the end of the world, and it had nothing to do with climate change. End quote. Eschatology is like any other subject in religion. There's an enormous amount of disagreement about pretty much everything, but evangelicals tend to embrace a similar family of ideas about how the world will end. And keep in mind, evangelicals are far more literal-minded than many other Christian sects. So when they talk about the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist, some kind of one-world government, and the general fulfilling of prophecy, they think it will all happen, and sooner rather than later. According to Pew Research in 2010, quote, By the year 2050, 41% of Americans, not of evangelicals, of Americans, believe that Jesus Christ definitely or probably will have returned to earth. End quote. Here's a headline from Newsweek. Trump will start the end of the world, claim evangelicals who support him. They really believe we are in the end times, and they think Trump is fulfilling biblical prophecy. Neil J. Young, a religious historian, said, quote, Israel is a key part of this story, as Christians believe that events there are fundamental to bringing about the end times. Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel is the only concrete thing that his evangelical supporters can point to as a part of fulfilling biblical prophecy to bring about the second coming of Christ. End quote. Young went on to explain that many evangelicals believe Trump was ordained by God. Quote, For his evangelical supporters, there's a sense that Trump's unlikely election to the presidency proves that he has been chosen by God. He shouldn't have won the election, so the fact that he did just demonstrates that only God could make it happen. End quote. I remember when I was in elementary school, I was shown Matthew 24, 6-8 in Sunday school as a prophecy that was taking place before our very eyes. Quote, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. End quote. Earthquakes in various places. Believing the end is nigh has been part of Christianity since the beginning. Jesus himself was an apocalyptic preacher. He predicted in Matthew 16, 28, quote, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. End quote. This is in the DNA of Christianity. From Jesus himself to the evangelicals today, 
Christians have believed that we were living in the end times. Charles McKay, in his book Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, said, quote, A strange idea had taken possession of the popular mind at the close of the 10th and commencement of the 11th century. It was universally believed that the end of the world was at hand, and that Jesus Christ would descend upon Jerusalem to judge mankind. All Christendom was in commotion. A panic terror seized upon the weak, the credulous, and guilty, who in those days formed more than 1920ths of the population. To increase the panic, the stars were observed to fall from heaven, earthquakes to shake the land, and violent hurricanes to blow down the forests. All these, and more especially the meteoric phenomena, were looked upon as the forerunners of the approaching judgments. Not a meteor shot athwart the horizon that did not fill a district with alarm. End quote. If we're discussing the Christian imagination, there's also the Left Behind series to consider, or the dozens and dozens of Christian movies that fantasize about the rapture. There was also a bestseller decades ago called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. A lot of Christians denounce these sort of predictions, citing scripture that says no man knows the day nor the hour that Christ will return. The author's reply was that he didn't claim to know the day or the hour, he just knew the year. It's not that Christians don't like prophesying about the imminent end of the world, they're fine with that, they just don't like getting too specific about it. Jesus believed the end times were upon us, so did his disciples, so did the Christians of the 10th and 11th centuries, so did the 88 Reasons crowd, and so do the 41% of Americans today who think Jesus will have returned by 2050, which is incidentally the same year we're supposed to have our carbon emissions to near zero. The point is that this is not a new phenomenon. This is in the DNA of Christianity. Apocalyptic fantasies and a certainty that the world is ending soon has been a part of the religion since the very beginning. Once you really let the apocalypticism of Christianity sink in, you see that there is no earthly project to be pursued in the long term. We are not going to sustain human life ultimately. There's no basis to care about the far future, and there is no reason to care about sustaining human life or civilization. Why worry about climate change or any of the other challenges to humanity when it'll all be over soon anyway? Not just for you personally, but for everyone. It's hard enough for human beings to plan for the far future and care about it without any Christian influence. But this is exacerbated by the belief that Jesus will return soon. So the belief that this decaying, fallen world will end any day now is a part of Christianity. But why would that be celebrated? Or at least seem like it's nothing to worry about? The answer is their just world belief. Their confidence that there is moral order to the universe. The forces of good will triumph over the forces of evil in the end. Christianity would have us believe that a perfect person, God, is enforcing moral order. He personally is ensuring that good triumphs over evil. If there's a benevolent God, how could it end any other way? If there's an all-good, all-powerful being, he would surely see to it that good would win the war. The belief in an ultimate moral order to the universe, or a just world hypothesis, is enabled by their otherworldliness. In the end, the forces of good will triumph over evil in spectacular fashion, without any help from us. That's just how it's going to go. Good will overcome evil in the end, without us doing much of anything. A deep complacency that would have been much harder to come by on naturalism is produced by the belief that in the end, good will win and evil will lose. Christianity propagates this belief, implicitly through certain doctrines, and literally, in the book of Revelation, for example, 
where Satan is cast into hell for all eternity. This just world belief, which includes the moral balancing of the scales after death, has eliminated from us any real sense of the tragic, the idea that things really might not work out for the good, or that a beautiful thing might actually be lost. With a benevolent God, there are no real tragedies. Tragedies are essentially a myth. The only reason they seem real is because of our short-sightedness and lack of knowledge. We would see how it all worked together for the good in the end, and for what reason everything happens, if we had God's knowledge. However, if your eyes are set on this world and this life only, sometimes good really doesn't win, and it's not in the service of something larger. The doctrines of Christianity prevent us from even recognizing this as a possibility, and it prevents us from recognizing the possibility that we actually could make ourselves go extinct. There was a time before human beings, and there will be a time after us. It happened to 99.9% of all other species that have ever existed on Earth. Someday, it'll happen to us, and there's no reason to suppose it won't be our own doing. But if God's in control, how could things ever really go off the rails? He's in control, and the world will end when he decides it'll end. Cows are not going to thwart God's plan or prevent him from carrying out his intentions and it's not his intention that we go extinct. Christians already know how the world is going to end, more or less. Like that pastor said, he had insider information. And there's a benevolent God who has humanity's back. If you're a Christian fundamentalist, there just is no way climate change could be the threat that scientists say it is. It's not possible. A Christian worldview naturally produces disbelief towards the severity of climate change and complacency towards any action. This is not an example of Christian doctrine being misused or bastardized. This is just a logical consequence following from mainstream Christian belief that has been a part of Christianity since the beginning. To the evangelical, nothing can really go wrong, even if climate change is real, and it was as bad as scientists say it is. All that means is that it factors in to God's apocalyptic plans. It would obviously be ridiculous to blame religion for the entirety of our inaction towards climate change or our refusal to accept the reality of it. I'm only focusing on the religious contribution to the state of affairs and the reasons behind the Christian tendency to deny climate change. Polling data is unambiguous on this point. Christians don't accept climate change at very high rates and are very lethargic about taking any action. The evangelical and former White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, criticized a call for action on climate change from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez by telling Sean Hannity, quote, I don't think we're going to listen to her on much of anything, particularly not on matters that were going to leave in the hands of a much, much higher authority. To quote Representative Tim Wahlberg, As a Christian, I believe there is a creator God who is much bigger than us, and I'm confident that, if there's a real problem, he can take care of it. End quote. The religious scholar, William Gruen, trying to reason with his peers, said, quote, Contemporary discourse in America, both in the public domain and in academia, is often quick to posit that religious stories are really about politics, power, social standing, and the like, and people often refuse to take the religious aspects of the narrative seriously. Yes, of course, any of these issues can be understood within a broader context of social and cultural concerns. Nevertheless, this contextualization does not give license to disregard the religious angle as superficial or otherwise unimportant. Whether we like it or not, individuals and communities are inspired by their religious identities to take action in the world. Those actions can have positive effects, 
or negative ones. The fact remains, however, that their actions are often rooted in religious ideals or their worldview. End quote. It should be noted that the causes I mentioned, the otherworldliness, apocalypticism, and belief in a moral order, are not bugs in the software of Christianity. These elements of the Christian worldview are not being misused. The text isn't being misinterpreted. The traditions are not being betrayed. This is not a perversion of Christianity. This is Christianity. It's not that religion is being misused here. The very nature of religion is what makes it poisonous, and what makes it an obstacle to be overcome, if we want our lives to be good in the present, and humanity to continue into the future. Because of technological advancement, we have power that no humans have wielded in the past. Our beliefs cause our actions, and our actions are more consequential than ever. The stupidity and poison inherent to religion could tragically degrade our only life and cause irreversible catastrophe. I would say to environmentally conscious Christians, rather than impotently blathering on about being good stewards, maybe you should adopt a new verse. Revelation 11.18 The time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. That's all I have for you today. I'd like to thank a new patron, Alex Green. Thank you, Mr. Green. And I'd like to thank my patron Hall of Famers, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to take a handful of black pills, you can like me on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also check out Walden Pod, our sister show. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.